teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, as Eric said, my name is Derek Neese. Um, I have the privilege of serving on staff here as the minister to college students. And um, as I said as well, for the longest time, I was doing children's ministry. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. I really did. And I, I would have never placed myself in children's ministry. I also would have never placed myself in college ministry. So I've kind of found myself in a place where I'm just like, God, you keep moving me and you keep changing my venue and my space and my sphere of influence. But um, every moment that he's done it has been more than I ever could have asked or imagined. And so um, it's been a lot of fun to see how he's done that. And part of that, part of my story and part of where I'm at is that the importance of us seeing the big picture, the big story of what God's doing in our life is important to understand and put our circumstances into perspective. When you have a big view of what God's doing, when you have a bigger view than just yourself and your immediate life and your circumstances, when you can put yourself in the sphere of the, the big gospel picture, what God's done from the moment he spoke creation into being to the moment that he will come back and be with us and then we spend eternity with him, we have a place in that story and our story is still being written. And so for me, I, I enjoy looking back and seeing the big picture um, just to get a get us going this morning. Um, just a little meme. Um, wife texts husband on a cold morning. Windows frozen won't open. Husband texts back. Gently pour lukewarm water over it and then gently tap edges with hammer. Wife texts back 10 minutes later. Computer really messed up now. Some of you will get it here in a few minutes. But here's the thing is that when we miss the big picture then we can really screw things up. We can really find ourselves in a mess because we haven't put things in the right perspective. And so for this guy, he wasn't even, he, he may have had, he may have thought he was in the right story, the right thing was going on, but he wasn't even in the ballpark because when she texted back, he was like, man, what have I done? What have I, what has my wife done? What am I going to come back to? And so I think it's important that as we look at any story, whether it be a figure out of history or it be a figure out of biblical history, it be even our own lives, it's important to look at the big picture as well as look at the individual small moments that make up their life. Um, because those things aren't insignificant, those things aren't mundane, but I also think that we sometimes look at specific pieces of a, of a person's life but miss where they find themselves in the scheme of you know, the big story of the gospel. And so here's what I want us to do is on your papers and then on the screen, I'll put it up there. But I want you to kind of see something for a second. As we look at the life of Ezra, here's what I want you to see is, and this is, this is something that I am still like, wow, this makes so much more sense. Um, this is the chronological order of the books of the Bible. Okay. And so this is, if they were to take the books of the Bible and put them in a certain order that they would fit into a historical pattern, um, this is kind of what it would look like. And it does not look exactly like we would necessarily see them in our Old Testament. Um, and some of them happen one on top of the other. Some of them happen at the same time. But here's what has happened is that we have Genesis, Exodus, you know, we have all the beginning of the story. We have the Torah, as we would call it, the law that is given, the story of how God began the world. We have that at the beginning. And then we have these, these moments of the prophets and of the kings and the chronicles that are written about them. We have all this time. And where we're finding ourselves is they have been redeemed. They've been put in the promised land. 
And we know that in the promised land, they were given a covenant. They were said, you are given a set of rules, a set of ways that distinguish you among the peoples of the world. So here's what we want to do. You are to act this way and God will go with you. God will be with you. God will bless you. And so we find ourselves kind of in this middle section and that's what's going on. But at the same time, it's not just, it's not all hunky-dory. If you know the story of the Israelites, it's kind of the story of our lives is that there's ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs and they do really well and they fail again. They do really well and they fail again. And then what happens is there's a moment where it all breaks down and there becomes a 70 years of exile. And so you see the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, you see what's led up to that, you see what is following that. But there's this, these, there's this moment where the Lord has allowed the nation of Israel and the people that he has called by his name, he has said, you are going to find yourselves under captivity and you're going to be in a place that is not comfortable with you. If you're going to be in lands that are not yours, you're, what, is, what you think is yours, all those things are going to be made someone else's. Your time, your privileges, your efforts, your work, it's all going to be taken and used by and for the benefit of someone else. And so that's, that's a heavy burden to weigh, is that we see all of that. But then here's the beauty of where we're, where we're going to look at, is that Ezra and Nehemiah get to be a part of something incredible. They get to be a part of something of these people coming out of exile. Ezra and Nehemiah are part of the story where the people are coming back to the lands where they had started. They're coming back to their homes. But here's the other part of it is that they're not coming back to everything being all in one piece. Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and some other people as they're coming in, they're coming back to a place that has been destroyed and demolished. They're walking probably into some places that still have smoldering ashes. The beauty of the temple that Solomon built is now in crumbles at their feet. The wall that surrounded the city that made them seem so majestic is, is in shambles. There's, there's just utter mess and chaos that they're walking into. And so I want you to see that because here's the thing is that that's exactly where we are today. If we stop and take a, an honest look at culture and the world around us and see what's going on, we realize that God has put us as men in a world that is chaos and mess and we see it in shambles and there's even places that we walk into that there's still smoldering ashes. Let that sink in for a second. Like Ezra and all the men of the Bible and the men that we are around today, we are all of the same stock. We're all created in God's image and we all have the power of God within us to impact the world around us it's us stopping and taking a good assessment and looking at it and saying, okay, God, why have you put me here? That's what it is. And so Ezra, he, he wasn't part of the first. Here's, your, here's the next picture that's on there. Um, oops, let's go back one. Come on. There it is. All right, so this picture right here is that there's three returns from exile. So the men are the men and women are leaving where they have been and they are coming out of 70 years of captivity. So one group of people leaves, they come back to this land and they begin to rebuild the temple under a man named Zerubbabel. And that's the first three or four chapters of, of Ezra. And you get to chapters 5 and 6, kind of 3, 4, 5, and 6, the temple's being built, the temple's being established, the temple um, becomes just another magnificent thing, but it's nowhere near and never will be to the extent of what Solomon's was. So the temple gets rebuilt. Ezra comes in years later, brings another group of exiles with him. They come back to the land. And Ezra realizes, yeah, you've built a temple. You've built a nice house. You've built a big building, but your hearts aren't in it. You're not doing what God has called you to do. You're not living differently. So Ezra calls for reform. 
Ezra calls for something different to begin to happen. You know, and when, we, when you look in Ezra at 8, 9, and 10, the men come to Ezra and they say, Hey, aren't the laws this? Don't they say this? Aren't we supposed to act this way? And Ezra goes, Yes, you are. And instead of Ezra going, I'm going to condemn you, Ezra falls to his knees, breaks down and says, Lord, we have failed you. Again, I want you to translate that to our society and our culture today. As men, sometimes we have this great ambition, this desire to go into the mess that's around us and go, don't you realize that you mess that up yourself? Don't you realize? And we just like start throwing words and blame around. And Ezra goes, no, that's not what a man of God does. A man of God doesn't charge in the world necessarily and, and condemn it and call it out and point fingers. A man of God, when he looks and he's broken, as he falls on his knees and cries out and says, God, we need you. So that's what Ezra does. So Ezra, there's Ezra and Nehemiah go hand in hand. And there's a moment in Nehemiah that Ezra stands up and he begins to, he opens the law of the Lord. He begins to speak it. And it says that the nation of Israel, the people around him just began to wail. The Levites, the men that had heard and knew the law of the Lord, they began to rejoice because they had heard this. And they're like, it's coming again. The people that had never heard it, but heard how far they had fallen from the law of the Lord began to wail. And they said that you could, it, it said you could not distinguish between the two between the wailing and the cries of joy but there's just massive reaction to the law of the lord being re-read and reopened and and given back that's a big deal and so that's where we find ourselves is that ezra's right in the middle there's a temple being built nehemiah comes in and begins to build the wall and as you see at the end that's when they hit 400 years of silence so there's been this space where Isaiah and Jeremiah, if you look at the, the one above it, Isaiah and Jeremiah have already given proclamation to a coming Savior. The things that Pastor Greg has been talking about and been teaching us any mornings, Isaiah has already said that. So there's already been several hundred years of we've heard about a Savior being taught and preached, but we haven't seen him. And then Ezra comes in and he talks about reform, and then there's still going to be 400 years of silence that distinguish between this and the coming Savior. But what I think that Ezra is doing and what I see is that Ezra is stopping and saying, but we've got to be ready. We're not ready. We're not in a place to receive this Savior because our hearts are still hard. So here's what I want to do real quick. Is I wanted to give you the big picture. Because just like I showed you that silly thing earlier is that we have to have the big picture to understand what exactly it is and how it is that Ezra was wired. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at one specific place in this. And I want us to just kind of look at the overview of Ezra for a second. And then we're going to just really pull apart one scripture. There's one scripture we're going to look at. And then here's what we're going to do is we're just going to look at his life kind of under a microscope, but in the, in the scheme of the big picture. So here's what we know about Ezra. If you look in Ezra um, chapter 7, this is Ezra chapter 7 is where Ezra actually enters his book. So Ezra has written 1 through 6. Ezra's not present until chapter 7. And so we see in chapter 7, here's what we know about Ezra. Ezra is from good stock. Ezra does the same thing that Paul does, does the same thing that Timothy does, does the same thing that Solomon and David do. When they introduce themselves, when they are introduced in their books, and there's a family lineage given. And you can trace back that lineage to great people of God, to scribes, to men that knew the law of God. And so Ezra comes from good stock. Ezra 1 through 7, 1 through 6. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Athiab, son of Amariah, son of Azra, son of Marioth, son of Zeraniah, son of Uzi, and son of Buki, son of Abusha, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priests. So do you see he's traced the lineage all the way back 
to Aaron, who was the chief priest that, that the Levite clan started from. And he says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. So some things we know. He was a scribe and a teacher. Just from what we read right there, I want you to always know this. Scripture defines itself. Scripture defends itself. So we see just from here, this is what we need to know about Ezra. He's from good stock. He comes from a lineage that has had a history of making known and knowing and loving the law of the Lord. He's a scribe and a teacher. He's one who is skilled in not only teaching and proclaiming the word of God, but he's also one that has spent time writing it and copying it down and taking the law and looking at it and making it accessible to the people. Skilled in the law of Moses. Now, when we say the law of Moses, we're not talking just the Ten Commandments. Do you realize that throughout the entire Torah, there are 613, I believe, or 630, there's a six and a three and something else in there. There's over 600 laws that are given that are counted as the law of Moses and the law of the Lord. Ten that kind of hone that down. And then we also see in Jesus, when he comes, he says that all the law can be summed up in two. We love God and we love people. We love God and we work to love others. And so, but here's the thing is that he's skilled in the law of Moses. He knows them. He's able to proclaim them and teach them, and he's able to keep men at a certain level and standard because of that law. Do you see what happened in verse 6? It says that he went, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. He found favor in the eyes of man. But why do you find favor in the eyes of man? Look at the very next section. For the hand of the Lord God was upon him. So what else, what else do we know about Ezra? He was thankful and recognized as God, God's provision. Later on in 7, 27 through 28, as they are leaving, he says, God, would you provide that someone would give us everything that we need and provide protection? And so he declares before the Lord, God, thank you for Artaxerxes. He's given me everything I've asked. But God, would you also go before us and would you protect us as we go on the way? He's aware of his surroundings and needs. And in chapter 8, as they're leaving, he looks around and realizes there are no Levites leaving with us. There's no Levites going with us into the land what does that mean? What do we need? He's like, we need men of God that know the law with us. He's a man of prayer and fasting. It says later on, again, that he is desiring that God go before them and with them. And then also when they come and they bring the sin of Israel out, he says, he goes for the Lord. He says, God, we have broken your law. It says that he fasts and he prays and he puts himself before God. And he's like, what have we done? He's willing to approach sin and rebuke them. Chapters 9 and 10, that's exactly what Ezra does. He goes in and he calls them out. Chapter 9, verse 6, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. My God, for iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Chapter 10, he leads by example. While Ezra prayed and made confession, he was weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered with him to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. So he led by example. He did these things. But here's the thing is that all of it comes down to this one verse. If you look at chapter 7, verse 10, there's one verse I want us to look at this morning, and I think this is an important place for us to land. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his, his statutes and rules in Israel. So here is what Ezra is doing. Ezra has stopped and he has said, this is who I am. I'm a man that's going to set my heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. So let's pull this verse apart for just a second. Here's the first part. For Ezra had set his heart. 
Literally, Ezra had stopped and he had devoted himself and said, I am going to plant my feet, plant my heart, plant my life, plant my will, all my desires. I'm going to plant here. And where was here? It was in favor and in a right standing before the Lord. How do we know that? Because it's talked throughout the book of Ezra. The hand of the Lord was upon him. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of man. And so we see that he set his heart. Literally what this means is that he found a firm place to stand. I worked in a grocery store um, before I um, moved to Houston. And um, I did several different things. I kind of did cash register and got to interact with people and did customer service. And at one point, I, um, for about a year, a couple of years, I was a frozen food manager. So that meant that I got to order food and I had to restock the shelves and put things out. And so usually my days were filled with going into this freezer. And I, it was, I mean, I'm not a person who likes the cold. So I would have to bundle up, go in there, pull everything out. Then you go on the aisles and you make sure everything's full. You make sure all those things are full. So when it was empty, it was my fault because I hadn't ordered it or hadn't gotten it out there. So I was out there filling shelves one day. And I, during the day, it was pretty slow, usually. There were moms come with their kids. There were, you know, the occasional run from work to grab some groceries. So there's a mom going up into the aisles one day, and she has her kids with her. Um, little girl and little boy. Little, and she has a baby. So she's got a baby in the cart, and she's got a little girl and little boy, and they're running back and forth with her. Little girl's probably about four or five. Little boy's about seven or eight. They're running up and down, and you can hear them a couple aisles over, and he keeps going, on your mark, get set, go. And they run, and so you hear the, the patter of the feet. So they've gone back and forth. You've also heard the, you know, when one of them loses and just the pain and the, just the utter loss of losing the race. And so they get to the aisle that I'm working on and they're kind of running up and down. And at one point, sister, obviously, her being the younger one, obviously she just got sick and tired of losing and sick and tired of her brother making fun of her. And I don't know what else. Maybe it was this whole, you know, pent up anger at her brother. But she's just like, she, they, he says, on your mark, get set, go. And he takes off running and she just puts her hands on her hips. She goes, I'm not racing, so you can't win. And she just stands there and just looks at him, puts her nose in the air. And do you know what happened next? That, that boy turned around, that brother turned around, he goes, I mean, just you could see the fire light up in his eyes. He's like, you're going to get it. There's no way you're turning down on me. There's no way this is going to happen. You know, that brother sense is just like, uh-uh, you did not do that to me. And so I'm standing there putting stuff on the, I'm just put, filling the, filling the, the, the trick. And the trays in the, in the door. And I'm sitting there, I'm seeing this play out, and I'm like, this is fixing to go really bad. And so I see the fire lap in this boy's eyes, and then the next thing I see is him just take off running. And it's like slow motion. You know, you've got the shades of fire moving in the background, and he's just like running, but he's like, ah, he's like got the face of like 300 or Patriot, like running, he's like got this face on himself, running at his sister. And I'm like, Mom, you got to look up. Mom's just like, oh, okay, which one of this? Oh, hi. She's like not paying any attention at all. And brother's just like hauling. Like he's running for her. He's going to take her out. And this little girl, she set her feet. She planted herself. But you also see this boy had set his mind on, I'm going to win and I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. So they're both being stubborn in the way that they set their feet and the way they set their heart in that moment. Brother just hauls. And I'm like, you got to move. You got to move. But I'm like, I can't interact in this moment. Sister just stands there and she's just like, hands on her hips. I'm like, you got to move. Come on. I'm not ready to just go up and grab her and like pick her out of the way. All of a sudden I see the light bulb go off and I'm like, no, no. What is she? No way. And he's running full speed and she gets about, they get about this far apart. You know what he, you know what she does? Reached up and grabs that door 
opens that glass door to the freezer. So it's one of those doors that are on the island. She opens it up, and he just goes, boom! And he's, I mean, just like slammed into that door. I mean, I, I am not lying to you. He just ran, and he goes, bam, and hit the door. That mom immediately turns around, and she's got the look of like, what just happened? But then also like, oh, oh. I mean, you know the mom wanted to be like, yeah, like, yes, you just got school. Like, but here's the thing is that she planted her feet because she in her mind believed something that, that she knew would protect her. She knew there was something that she could plant her feet in and say, I'm okay. She planted her feet. That's what Ezra does. Is it says he set his heart. He planted his feet. In the Old Testament, it talks about the heart. The heart is the whole being. It is the whole man. It is what affects everything. When you look at Proverbs 4, Proverbs 4 says this, 420 through 27. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Did you hear that? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech and your devious talk from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Think about it. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. From the heart flow the wellsprings of life. In Italy, there was a little town called Siena, um, and the Siena was, was close enough to um, the bay that it was an important town for them to get in and out of, but it was also far enough away that they could not get water to this town. So there were these miles and miles lengths of tunnels that were built. They were dug and they were put into, into place to bring water to the city. And the city found itself to be an important place in Rome, and so it actually began to flourish. Even without water and without the basic needs that you would think would need to be for a city, it kind of looked like it was just going to be a military town for the longest time. But it began, to, it began to flourish because they spent years digging these tunnels that would go into the city, and these tunnels would bring water. They'd be drinking water. It'd be pure water for them to bathe in, to do their normal activities. So this water would come into the city. But the water was so precious that they had to defend every single ounce of that water. That water would come in because from the water came life. From water, they grew things. From water, they drank. From water, they bathed. From water, they kept themselves alive. So they would guard it with everything that they had. So this, this, this city had these giant, they would almost look like castles around where the water would come into the city. Because what it was is that they built fortresses at the moment where the water came out to protect that wellspring of life. They would do anything and protect it at all costs. There was a woman who was rumored to have gone in um, from the Chaldeans and she was had rumored to have poisoned one of those wells where the water came out. And it says this. It says that the history of that city is still kept. One woman um, living in Siena was suspected of having been paid by the Florentines to poison the well. She was arrested and sentenced to be flayed alive in Campo. This being Siena, the records of her case are still in the town hall. They record the exact price paid by the commune for the special knives used by the public executioner to do the job. They thought it was such a big deal to protect the water coming into that city that they even recorded in there with the knives that were used to flay her, which means they would pull the skin off of the body in the public square. They thought it was so important to protect the wellspring of life that came into the city that they did whatever it took to protect it. So even her rumored having poisoned the water, they took her and said, we are going to put you in front of the public. We're going to flay you. And you know what? We're even going to put in the town records the knives that we used. Because they saw that it was important to protect what was the wellspring. 
Ezra knew that his heart was what he had to set. It's where everything had to start. He had to protect his heart. He said, I'm going to set my heart. I'm going to plant here. This is what I am. We should set our hearts in such a way that we defend it. We should set our hearts and ground in such a way that we say, God, what is it that you've put in my heart? What is it that you have placed me in charge of? What are my spheres of influence? How do I protect my heart so as to protect my family? so as to protect my children, so as to protect my job, my reputation, so I can protect the name that I live under, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. How do I protect it the way the men of Siena protected their water? Think about that. Stop and think, how do I protect that? And then it goes on and it says this, Ezra not only set his heart, but he studied. He set his heart to study. He set his heart to open the word of God on a regular basis. And I love what the Hebrew word means. Here's what it means. Ezra studied. It means to tread or to frequent. He would frequent the word of God. He would open the word of God and he would tread upon it. He would spend time walking with it. He would tread into the word of God and say, what is it, God, that you are showing? What do your laws look like? How do I follow them? What does your holiness look like? He frequented the word of God. He would continually put himself before and here's the next thing he studied he frequented he traveled to the word of god to study what the law of the lord the law of the lord literally being the torah because remember if you look at the big picture here's the importance of this the big picture is that they are coming out of exile and they are in the place that they are going to land when the messiah comes so what is ezra doing he's coming back and saying the law of the lord is what we are going to look at and study because the law of the lord is what separates us from every other person It is the covenant standards by which God has said, I am going to love you and you are going to love me. And that love is what separates you from that group and that group and that group and that group. And that is what it sets you to be righteous and is what makes me look holy to the rest of the world. And so what Ezra does, he's like, I am going to study the law of the Lord and I'm going to make sure that you know what the law of the Lord looks like because it is the covenant regulations by which God has said, I will have a relationship with you. So Ezra says, I'm going to stop. I'm going to tread frequently into the law of the Lord because then what am I going to do with that? Here's what he's going to do next. He is going to do it. He's not going to teach it yet. He is going to do the word of God. Ezra did what he learned. He saw it. He read it. He studied it. He did it. He set his heart. He said, God, I'm going to plant myself here in a way that I can honor you with my life. And how do I do that? By looking at your law, by looking at how I love you and how I honor you and how you have shown us to be righteous and holy. And how am I doing that? By studying your law, by looking at what you've laid down. And then not only that, I'm going to actually put it into practice. I'm going to actually do it. There were some things that when I got in children's ministry, Chad Overton, the children's ministry, there were some things that he told me to do. And I was like, I am never doing that. I'm going to look silly. One of the things that we do is we we help kids pray by we, we go, all right, everybody arms out wide. Here we go. Three, two, one. We put our hands together. And I was like, this is so silly. But when you start doing it, every goes quiet. I mean, it is amazing how quiet you can get kids when you say, all right, everybody arms out wide. Here we go. Three, two, one. Whole place goes silent. We pray. I was like, so I did it a couple times. And then even Jared can attest to this. The first Sunday I was in college ministry, I walked up there and I was like, all right, here we go. Arms out wide. Everybody stretch. We're not going to pray like that up here in college ministry. We're not going to do that. I mean, but like it became what I did because I heard it. I was taught that. I actually did it and I saw it work and it became habit. It became what I did. It became something that I did on a regular basis. And so I was like, all right, let's do that. And then every time I would end the prayer, I would get the kids to be engaged. And I'd be like, all right, in Jesus name and all of kids worship said, and they would go, amen. 
And I've done that one morning too. I've been like, all right, in the name of Jesus and all of college ministry loves you, amen. And so I'm like, like those things become habit. There's so many other things that you can say become habit, but when you begin to do them, they just begin to happen and they begin to come off. And so here's what I want to challenge you is that are the things that are habit, things of the Lord. The things that you're doing regularly are those things of the Lord. The things that you wake up and you find yourself doing each and every morning and each and every day are those things that honor and please the Lord. Because Ezra's like, I don't only want to study it, I don't only want to hear it, I don't only want to set my heart on it, but I want to do it. I want to be obedient. So what does that obedience look like? Just what we talked about earlier, he was a man who fasted and prayed before the Lord. He put himself before the Lord and he said, God, I, I need you and I want you to show these people what it is, where we have fallen short. So he stopped and he was like, this is what it's about. And then here's the last thing he did. Not only did he do it, but then he began to teach it. He began to teach the word of God. He began to teach the law of the Lord. Um, the end of that verse says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so we see that, it, that Ezra took the stance of being a disciple maker where he taught people what he was learning, not only doing it for himself. And so I looked at the word teaching, and when you look at the word teaching in the Hebrew, it actually comes out to be the word goad. And I didn't know what the word goad meant, so I investigated a little more, and the word goad is literally like a cattle prod or a, a sharp pointed stick they would use to direct cattle or the ox when they would um, be tilling the ground or working out in the farmland. And so I got this picture of that's what Ezra's doing with people of Israel, is that he is taking the statutes of the Lord, taking the things he has learned, the things that he's doing, and he is poking and prodding and pointing the people of Israel in the right direction so they can honor the Lord with their lives, so they can be in right standing before him and so that they will honor and do the covenant stewardship that's been laid before them in the law of the Lord. Um, so as you see that, what I was getting the picture of as well is that you recognize that Ezra wasn't teaching necessarily for them to change completely their ways, but he was pointing them in the direction so they would make the choice for themselves. He was prodding them and pointing them in a the direction where they'd be able to honor the Lord with their own lives, with their own decisions, and with the way that they would act. And the implication is that he was pushing them in such a way that they learned. You see, when you teach correctly, when you teach in a way as to disciple, you teach them the correct way to do something, and they decide for themselves how they're going about to do that. When you think about it, if you do all the teaching and all the learning and all the work, the pupil that you're trying to teach isn't going to learn anything. So Ezra recognized, I need to point them in the direction, I need to share the law and the word of God, and then I need to allow them to make their decisions for themselves. I need to allow them to take their own stand and in such a way honor the Lord where they will show that they are separate from the people that surround them. Uh, what's interesting is that what they were doing in this moment is the sin that's brought out in 9 and 10 is that they are intermarrying with the people around them. And so what Ezra is doing is trying to point them in a direction where they will separate themselves from the people of the land and separate themselves unto God. And we see that he teaches and he doesn't solve the problem, but he directs them towards the word of God and says, this is the way you should act. And we see what happens in Nehemiah 8 is that he stands upon the woodblock in the middle of the city and he declares, this is the word of the Lord. He points his eyes to the sky, not on the people, points his eyes to the sky and puts them on the word of the Lord and begins to teach. And we see the people reacted to that because they didn't see what Ezra had done, but they saw that they did not match what the law of the Lord demanded of them. And so what does it say in Nehemiah 8? It says that they begin to weep and they begin to wail and they begin to recognize that they had not set, been set up to the standard that God had put before them with his covenant relationship. And so as we look at that, we see that Ezra did several things with his life. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. 
he sought to do it, he sought to teach it, and he sought to do it in such a way that his statutes and the laws of the Lord would be rung throughout the land. And so what we talked about today is we really wanted to make sure that we understand as men of God that we set our feet in such a way that we honor the Lord, that we study not only his word, but we study the world around us so that we know how to react and interact with the world around us. We've taken the law of the Lord, the things that he has put before us, and we say, God, teach us how to love you and how to love people. Teach us how to follow Jesus and, make, and be fishers of men, just as Jesus taught his disciples. And then we do that. We go out into the world and we do it with our actions, with our words, with our families, with our coworkers, with those we come in contact with, and we teach it. We prod and we poke people in a certain direction where they will see, this is the direction I'm going to head, this is the way I'm supposed to go, and this is the way the Lord has called us to. So as we end today, here's where we want to, here's where we want to land. We want to land in such a way that we recognize that Ezra stood on a block in the middle of the city. He stood up before the men, before the women, before the children of Israel and said, this is the law of the Lord. This is where we have fallen short. But this is also your rescue. This is your restoration and the fact that you trust the law of the Lord and you respond to it and you turn your lives back to him. And why was he doing that? Well, just as we talked at the very beginning, because once Ezra and Nehemiah exit the picture, they are now heading towards the coming of Jesus. They want the people to be ready to accept the Savior. But we recognize, as we all have, that Israel still fails in fulfilling the law and keeping what they've done. We see that even as Jesus came to fulfill the law and make the law in some way simpler for us to understand, we still did not accept him. And so Ezra is saying this is a continual battle. This is a continual, as Eric would say, a long stretch, a long walk in the same direction. That's what obedience is. And so that's what Ezra is teaching us to do. Men, thank you for having me here today. And um, let's turn to our discussion questions now. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.